Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. And so we've come to the book of Hebrews. There are many that look at this book and tremble in fear, and I am not one of them. To me, it's one of the most encouraging books in the entire, entire Bible. If you'd turn there to chapter 1, today we'll do an introduction to it, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the word of the Lord, as we take the first three verses today. Because there is nothing better than Jesus. Amen? That is the substance of the book of Hebrews. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater. There is no thing that can conquer the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's no religion that can get you to heaven save that relationship that we have with Christ And so today our introduction will take verses 1 through 3. Here in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. God is still speaking to his people. God spoke in times past. God spoke in times past. God has always spoken. Spoken to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days. Did you ever think about the fact that you're now in the last days? Actually, since Jesus walked on this earth, we've been in the last days. We are just a whole lot closer to the end of the last days than we have ever been. In these last days, has spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, and when he himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Father, we give you your word. And we ask that you would take it and now impart it to us as truth. Speak to us as your people. Strengthen the weak. Encourage the strong. Build your church. Anoint us to receive and to hear what the Spirit would say to us this moment on this day. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Would you take your seats? In the 1960s, there was a man that was in Leeds, England, and he'd been having trouble hearing for quite some time. Uh, He went to his audiologist uh, who had given him hearing aids and had been replaced a number of times, and he went and he says, "I, I just really can't hear anything. And the doctor removed the hearing aid from his right ear, and all of a sudden he could actually hear. 
the hearing aid had been in the wrong ear for 20 years. There is a difference between hearing and believing and understanding. There is a difference between actually listening to what God is saying and actually hearing what it is that the Lord wants to tell you. That is the reason that Jesus in the Gospels said multiple times, let him who has ears hear. He was encouraging us to open our minds, our hearts, to actually take in what it is that he was saying. Because a lot of people actually listen, but they don't hear. They can even quote to you what the Bible says, but they don't do it. And so the problem is not in the audible hearing of the word, it is in the heart hearing of the word. It's what do we do with what we have heard. The book of Hebrews seeks to square this away for us as the church. God is going to speak to us, and as we journey through this book in chapter 3, we will hear today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Look, let's be honest. The entire Bible has things we don't actually like to hear sometimes. Amen? I don't know about you, but when the Bible touches something that is one of my you know, little things that I want to hang on to, sometimes I'm like, eh, Maybe I'll just kind of, la, 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 la. We're prone to not listen. Oh, we hear. If you've been married, say amen. (laughs) Oh, we hear the words. We're just not listening. Probably few things cause more problem in marriage than not listening. Any of you guilty of formulating a response before the words have even gotten fully out? That's called not listening. Oh, you're hearing. Make sure you don't take that into your relationship with the Lord as well. It will do the same thing. Not listening to the Lord is a very dangerous thing. Some people skip this book because of what's perceived to be the stern warnings contained within it. I don't actually look at them that way. And in fact, when I look at this very unique book, it actually thrills me. Because for me, maybe you're not this way, but for me, I like knowing what it is that God expects from me. I actually find comfort in his words, even when they are exhortations, admonitions, things that I should not do sometimes, and even the things that I should do that perhaps I don't want to do. All of those things fall into the category of admonition or exhortation. We use those terms in the church almost with a negative connotation, don't we? It's like, oh man, I just got exhorted. Praise God for the exhortations that we've received from Scripture. Because those exhortations can transform those paths that you're on that you're not supposed to be on. Places you're going that you're not supposed to go. The book of Hebrews 
is this unique way that God speaks to a group of people that were highly religious. Let us not forget that this letter was written to Hebrew Christians. People who had struggled with their their Jewish faith, the law, the prophets, the wisdom writings, the pseudepigrapha, the other books, the things that we would call the Old Testament, all of them collectively, they thought they had an inside path. And in fact, even their own heritage as God's people became a stumbling block to them actually listening to what God was saying. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, for you search the scriptures, for you think that in them you have life, but it is they, the word of God, that speak of me, Jesus. The Old Testament is the revelation of Jesus the Messiah. That's its whole purpose, is to reveal Christ, to bring us to that place to where we can see God's answer, because Judaism wasn't actually the answer. It was a stop along the journey to Messiah. It was the way God's people related to God before Messiah was on this earth. But it was not a replacement for faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so here in this book, as we look at our introduction, I'm going to give you five general things that you can look at, and you can track these. Remember, you can download these slides from our website. They're on the Now page. You can just simply download them to your phone. You can do that later. But these five characteristics you're going to see throughout the entirety of this book, and they are very important. First, it's a book of evaluation or a book of comparison. And why is that important? Because we have a tendency to look at almost everything with some form of evaluation or comparison. When you go shopping, what do you do? You evaluate the product and you look to see how it compares to other things, correct? When you buy a house, you do the same thing. A car, the same thing. You even do that when you're looking for a spouse, don't you? I hope you do. I hope you're not just settling for any dude that walks down the street, like, oh, you know, that guy, he doesn't have a job. (laughs) We are prone to evaluate and to compare. It's actually a good thing. And so here in the book of Hebrews, we have this exact same thing going on. Because repeatedly we'll see the word perfect. What was imperfect in the law what was imperfect in the sacrifices, what was imperfect in the feast days, what was imperfect in Judaism, what was imperfect in the prophets is going to be made perfect in Christ Jesus. What was a picture would become a reality. These are comparative. This is a way that you can look at the book of Hebrews so it floods into your soul with truth. If you just look at it as statements and you lose the comparative aspect of it, 
You see, I want to be sanctified exactly as chapter 10 will say. But in order for me to know what it means to be sanctified, I have to also understand what it means to not be sanctified. Amen? That's why we have negative and positive. That's why there's tension between those things. The Lord will speak to us through these comparisons. The second thing that we see is it is a book of exhortation. Now, probably many of you fail to realize that the word exhortation actually means strong encouragement. It doesn't mean whooping. It doesn't mean beat down. It doesn't mean you're dead. The word exhortation is a simply strong encouragement. It's not meant to frighten you. When you exhort your children about some danger in life, maybe you're going to talk to them about drugs. Maybe they're, they're about to go on that grand journey called getting a driver's license. You express to them, look, you, you need to pay attention. You need to check your blind spot. Why are you exhorting your children? Is it because you hate them and you want them to die? Is it because you hope they get into an accident? No, exactly the opposite is true. The reason you exhort your children is so that they stay out of trouble and they live a long and healthy and prosperous life, right? The Bible does the same thing, and very specifically here in the book of Hebrews, we get exhorted. We're strongly encouraged about some things that we need to really consider. Whenever you are informed of danger by someone who loves you, it is a huge blessing. So these difficult passages... And there are five of them are there for your strong encouragement so that you don't go the wrong direction, so that you understand what's expected of you. Matter of fact, we use the word warning very often. That word is only found one time in the entire book of Hebrews. And there it's used as God warns Noah. Well, why did God warn Noah? Because God was being loving and kind. A flood's coming. If God doesn't warn Noah, God doesn't love Noah because Noah and his family were the eight righteous people on earth, right? How unfair would that have been to not warn Noah, dude, you need to get in the ark. So don't look at exhortations like something is negative. They're quite positive. It's also a book of introspection. Some of you probably don't like looking inside your own life. I know there are parts of mine that I've, you know, it's like, yeah, can I like block that door off? Can I maybe not gaze back into that particular room of my life? The book of Hebrews forces us to take a look inside, to examine ourselves, to check and see. Look, the bottom line is the ages of man are colliding right now. The devil has had his run. He's near the end of his time. We are getting close to the time when the church is going to be called home and the Lord's going to return. The worlds are colliding. I need to look and see what kind of believer I am in these last days. Because I don't think we have a lot of time left to be used of the Lord before the Lord comes for his church. So I should be looking inwardly. I can't always be looking at everyone else going, well, if they would just. 
No, for every believer, it is what are you doing with what you have been given? The church is too full of people who are willing to look at other people's lives and go, the reason I'm okay is because they're not. We need to look inside, church. I need to look at my own heart first and see what I can do better, where I can be used in a greater way. And so the book of Hebrews does this. It causes me to look inside. I want to check and see how my faith is doing. You see, the truth of the matter is, no one can lead anyone to some place they themselves are unwilling to go. Amen? You can't do it. You can't lead somebody in living a life of faith unless you're willing to live a life of faith yourself. Part of the problem is we like to just simply get understanding. We like to have knowledge. We like to know how. That's why all these do-it-yourself programs are so popular on television right now. We want to know how to do it. Here's the problem. All y'all can't do it. I've seen some of your projects. You should give up right now. Just don't even think about picking up a tool. Stick to math or whatever you're good at. You, you see, we like to know, but we aren't always good at doing. We need to know what lane we run in. We don't all have the same gifts. We've all been given a gift, at least one. We're to use that and any others for the glory of the Lord. When I look inside, I look to see what God wants to do with Jeff. What does God want to do with me? What are my key gifts? How can I have strength? How can I have reliability? You see, part of the problem that the church has gotten into, especially in these last couple of years or so, is that we've started leaning on the wrong things. We have scaffolding propping the church up that's made out of politics. It's made out of divisive issues socially. Made out of all kinds of things. We need to be leaning on Jesus and Jesus alone. Everything else will be fine if we lean on Jesus. But i got to look at my own life first. I can't be looking at how there might be a political solution to it or a social problem that we can fix socially. I need to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do about this situation right now? Me, personally. He wants me to love my neighbors as myself. He wants me to walk in faith. He wants me to love unconditionally. He wants me to be the kind of friend that I would want to have if someone were my friend. You understand what I'm saying? He wants me to give to the poor. He wants me to prop up someone else's life who's, who's bent and broken. He wants me engaged in those things. You see, I can put it off on it. Well, we just need to pass a law. We just need to have a thing. We need to start this. No, Jeff, what are you doing with that person's life? That's the message of this book. It's what are you doing with what you have? What am I doing with what I have? And then collectively, what do we do together once we all figure out what it is that God wants us to do? So church, get ready. It's going to be a great journey. It is a book of promise, and I love this part of it. Expectation and promise. Look, 
I it cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to the 20th of June and walking into the sanctuary and go, okay, we've actually talked about this. Now, I don't think we can do it. Putting a 55-gallon drum right here on a pile of stones and putting diesel fuel in it, turning off the fire alarm and having you all come through your mask in it and burn them. But, but I have an expectation that I'm going to get to see your faces and we're going to get to hug on one another and shake hands and, and bless the name of the Lord with a whole heart and a loud voice and see all of those joyous things. How much greater should we be expecting the return of the king? Amen? If we can get that excited about losing a piece of fabric off our nose, how excited should we be about the return of Jesus? Amen? You see, our problem is we set the bar so low that we meet our expectations and it's low. Hebrews sets the bar high. It causes us to gaze on heaven and the faith of Abraham and Isaac, people unafraid and unashamed to say, I am 100% in for the Lord. It's a book of expectation and promise. Church, there's a world to come that so far exceeds the one that we walk in right now that if we just had an inkling of it in our minds, we would probably be a little bit nuts about wanting to go home to be with Jesus. It's like, man, I can't wait. Connie and I have been spending this time with family as we're in a place where we're waiting for the Lord to say, it's time to take Lee home. It's not a good place to be. It hurts. But because he loves Jesus, and we love Jesus, because the whole family loves Jesus, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about what it's going to be like to to walk those streets of gold. I don't know if they're gold. I know the Bible says they're actually clear as gold. I have an expectation that this world is not my home. And one day I'm going to where my real home is. I have a passport. You see, we lug around our passports. We travel or your little passport. Now you have to have the real ID to get on a plane. Can you imagine when you hold that one up that says, citizen of heaven? Amen? I think that trumps them all, doesn't it? It's also a book of glory or exaltation. Why? Because as we see here in the first three verses, it exalts the Lord Jesus like I don't believe any other book actually does. It puts front and center the reason that we can have the deep faith that abides in us today. And in fact, the word that's used here, glory, is actually the Hebrew word Shekinah. It's a transliteration. It's the type of glory that only exists because of the the God who holds it. He alone has it. But one day we're going to share in that glory. Isn't that nuts? To think that someday we're going to step into the glorious presence of the Lord 
and, and literally share in this glory that is of God who created everything. And so Jesus is pictured here as God on the throne, sitting with God the Father. The book of Colossians actually said, He was before all things, and in him all things consist. There was nothing created without him, and all things were created by him and for him. It's a book of glory. And man, we need glory in our world right now, because the world is, it's jacked up. It's like I talk to people constantly. I kind of get paid to do that. In that sense, I'm always talking to people. It's like, what's going on in your life? How can I help? How can I pray for you? And people are just depressed. It's like, "Ah." I read an article yesterday. LA Times, I think, printed it today. USC did a survey of the graduates. And almost 10% of them planned on moving out of the state of California. It's like, man. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's son. But my glory is in the Lord. My glory is not in this beautiful state. It's not in this wonderful country. My, my glory is contained in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the glory that we look forward to as believers. And that glory shines on all the rest of the parts of our lives. So when I travel to the Sierras and I'm sitting there on the shore of some lake and I'm trout fishing, I'm like, Lord, you created this? Then I ask him to give dominion over the trout in the water. (laughs) Lord, your word says. You've made me a little lower than the angels, but you've given dominion over all the earth to them. I want that one right there. (laughs) It's the glory of the Lord. It's a book of glory. Jesus is king in this book. Notice how as we begin this, we meet Jesus, God's only son. Verse 1 says, God, who in various times and various ways spoke in times past. There's a division here of two times. Times past and essentially times present or the last days. That would be the days forward from the birth of Messiah. By the fathers. To them. Through the prophets. This is all an unveiling of Jesus. And you can see it as you journey through the Old Testament, these incredible prophetic windows where you look at it and go, wow, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Wow, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Oh, that's actually telling where Jesus was going to be born. Oh, he would be born of a virgin. You just go through the Old Testament, there's these 485 or 86, depending on how you count them, pieces of information that all talk about Jesus, all written at a bare minimum 400 years before he walked on the earth. In David's case, a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth. 
And here's David, the psalmist, talking about King Jesus, my Savior, that he would die on Calvary's cross, that the grave wouldn't hold him, these truths that we lean on because we now have them verified in the New Testament. What was concealed in the old is revealed in the new. Exactly as D.L. Moody and D.A. Carson both said the same thing. It's like, here's all this Old Testament information that was clear, but it was still concealed because Messiah hadn't come. But now that he's come, it's like, oh, that's what you're doing. We meet him here in the book of Hebrews. Shows how the new covenant is so superior to the old It presents Christ as the ultimate revelation of God the Father. This is how we know God. That's why Jesus himself said, He hath seen me, hath seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the revelation of God the Father. When you talk to Jesus... You're getting the words that would have been spoken to you by the Father himself were he here. But because you can't look on the glory of the Almighty God and not perish, Jesus the Son could speak and did and walk and did and eat and did and journey with and did and die. He did. Amazing. The first time frame that we see is the time of the prophets of these two times. And if you think about it, before Messiah came, the brightest, the best hope that mankind really had was Judaism, the old covenant, the covenant that was made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the law, the prophets. Those things were all righteous, by the way. But they were only a tutor. They were a schoolmaster. They could get you only so far. They would bring you to the place of extreme understanding of the depth of your need, but they could never get you across the goal line. In a football analogy, it would be that you'd you'd start your own end zone and you'd march all the way down the field, get to the one-yard line, and every single time you'd get stopped at the goal line. You couldn't quite get in the end zone. With Judaism, you could get to the Day of Atonement. You you could have a letter of forbearance listed uh, in your account that shows that your sins are not yet due and payable, but they were never expunged. They weren't taken care of. They weren't remitted. There was no remission for those sins. They were simply put off for another day. That is all the further the law and the prophets could get you. That's why there was this lengthy repetition of these cycles. That's why there were yearly feasts. That's why they had to be repeated. That's why Jesus said, I have desired to celebrate this one last Passover with you. It would be the final one. There would only need to be one more, and it was his. Because he would pass over the sins of mankind. He would be that blood sacrifice. And so as we journey through this book, we see this time where the prophets certainly had their day. The problem is to return to that time is to 
denigrate the work of the cross. That's why when people come to me and say, well, we need to keep all the Old Testament feast days and everything. No, Jesus actually clearly said, this is the cup of the new covenant. The old covenant is gone. doesn't mean it was wrong. It just means that Jesus took care of it. What couldn't be done with the blood of bulls and goats was done with the blood of God's own son. Amen? That's a huge difference. And so these Jewish Christians that had recently come to faith were still kind of clinging to the Old Testament. They were clinging to the law. They were clinging to the feast days. And not that any of those things were wrong in and of themselves. They still represented the Messiah. But they were leaning on those things as if they themselves had some power still over them. And Jesus is saying, no, if you have me, you have all you need. He who hath the Son hath life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Period. It isn't about feast days. It's not about wearing a yarmulke. It's not about wearing a talus, a prayer shawl. It's not about you doing those things which were designed to point you towards Messiah, by the way. It's about you being in Christ. It's about your sins actually being forgiven instead of God giving you forbearance for them so that you could be punished at a later date. And so 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says this, First of all, you must understand these things, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women, moved of the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. The reason I I gave you the New Living Translation is to, to modernize it so that you understand. God simply reminds us that the Old Testament prophets were instructed by the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing private in what they said. But they could never, ever complete what needed to be done so that we could be saved. That's why Abraham's bosom still had Abraham in it when Jesus died. Abraham was waiting. Isaac was waiting. For who? Jesus. The Messiah. He would set them free. You see, Jesus wasn't like Jacob. God had spoken to Jacob. God had spoken to Isaac. Jacob has a dream. Abraham and Moses personally got at least a talk with God, even though they didn't see him. Jeremiah was given some object lessons to share with people. So they go, wow, that's kind of strange. And here's what it means. It's from the Lord. All those things were wonderful. But they all pointed the same direction. And that is the message that we find here in this amazing book. One of the things that's unique about biblical Christianity is it actually provides a way of salvation. It is the only religion in the world that does that, by the way. You have no security that you are going to paradise if you are a Muslim. It is completely up to Allah to 
tell you what he's going to do. And if he's had a bad day, sorry, it's actually capricious. Now, you can do some things like be a martyr, and that's going to get you pretty close. But Jesus said, he who has me has life. He said, I am the resurrection and life, and he who lives and believes in me, though he die, he shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Jesus is not just a prophet as Islam teaches. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the only Savior. Amen? Huge difference. Huge difference. He's not like Buddha. Not just going to give you an eightfold path to walk, and hopefully someday, once you've completed endless times of reincarnation, you finally make it back after not messing up, and you become one with the cosmic consciousness. No, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. Jesus is greater in every way to every prophet that has ever lived in every religion. That makes Jesus the ultimate authority on everything, doesn't it? He's above all. I want you to notice something here. Where is Jesus seated in these first three verses? He's seated at the right hand of God himself. He is simply the authority. Why? Because he himself is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus equates himself and says, I am he. I'm the creator. When Jesus was revealed in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Moses representing the Old Testament, the prophets, and, or the Old Testament law, and, and Elijah, the prophets, and here they are. And Remember what Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration? Okay, well, let's, let's build an altar. We'll build one to Moses and one to Elijah and one to you, Jesus. And Jesus said, mm-mm, no. Nah. There's only one worthy of worship, and it's not Moses. It's not Elijah. And yet today, to this day, at every Passover Seder, if you happen to be a practicing Jewish person, you're going to set a place for Elijah. Well, Elijah ain't coming back. Elijah's perfectly happy in heaven. He's not coming back until Jesus comes back. And then he'll come back with Jesus. But he's not greater than Jesus. Jesus is the one and only. Here in these verses, and I want to wrap this up, there are seven things that you can see in just these three verses that are affirmations of who Jesus actually is. In verse 2, he's the heir of all things. That means he is the rightful deed holder to this earth. This is his earth. Satan's having his day, 
but it belongs to Jesus, and he's coming back for his earth. It belongs to him. Also in verse 2, he's the creator of the entire universe, not just this world, but everything there is. He literally exudes the glory of God. The radiance of his glory. Jesus actually shares the Shekinah glory of God. That's a whole lot different than Moses. Moses' glory was temporary, wasn't it? What did he end up having to do once that glory started to fade? The dude put a sack over his head. It's like the glory of God is fading in me. He didn't want the children of Israel to see the fact that the glory of God was fading in him, so he wore a cover over his head. Not going to happen with Jesus, because Jesus is God. You can also see in these three verses that he is a representation of God's actual being. He's the sustainer of the world. He alone has purified our sins. These seven things are in these first three verses. And he's king over everyone and everything. That is why Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, said one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether they're on the earth or under the earth or in heaven, one day everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he is. He is. The book of Hebrews declares this, church, and it does so with as much depth as exists in all of Scripture. Jesus is God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory there in verse 3, the exact representation of his being. That's that passage in John 14, or in verses 9 and 10. That's what was, Jesus was getting at. He doesn't just reflect God, he is God. He isn't the Christ ideal as Christian science teaches. He isn't just a representation. He's not one of God's many sons as Mormonism teaches. He is God's only son and is God himself. Very different because if God didn't die on Calvary's cross, we're all still in trouble. We're actually dead in our trespasses and sins. Because it took perfection dying for my imperfection. It could not be a fellow sinner dying for sinners. It had to be a sinless one. The only one who's sinless is God. All contained here. These amazing truths. The word, the Greek word that's used here, translated being, the glory and the, glory and the radiance, the exact representation is a word in Greek, it's hypostasis, and what it means is the character that is indicative of the person. In other words, everything about them. In other words, it's your reality. You see, you are not just known by your face. You're not just known by your body. You're also known by your character. 
You're known by the qualities you possess. You're known by the information you possess. You're known by your life experience. You are known. In other words, the hypostasis of you is a whole bunch different than just the physical viewing of you, isn't it? You have a certain life experience, a certain set of friends, people that you know, things that you are, character traits that are uniquely yours. In fact, you actually have unique DNA. Jesus' DNA is from heaven. He's God. And he's the only one who's ever walked on this earth that can have that claim to fame. Amen? And finally, because Jesus is the final priest because Jesus is God. What we see in the book of Hebrews is the dismantling of the entire Jewish religious system, Judaism. It relied on the high priest in its final state, and again, we'll go through this as we journey through the book in some detail. But the final step for the high priest was to act as the intercessor between all of Israel and God. He did that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was exactly one day a year. The high priest would don his garments. He'd put on that breastplate that had the 12 stones that represented all 12 tribes. He would offer a sacrifice for himself and his family. He would cleanse himself of all of his own sins. And he'd wear that garment that had bells on the bottom and a cord on his ankle. And he would go on and intercede for the people and ask God for one more year to not pour out his wrath on people who deserved it. Jesus ended that. Now, I don't know how excited you are about that prospect as we study it. To me, this is the most fantastic thing about my relationship with Christ. I am forever forgiven. I don't have to worry about, you know, next week, next month, last year, last month, what I did yesterday. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? Jesus, we see as God's right-hand man sitting with God. The only person who could sit with God would be God. Everyone else stood in the presence of the Lord. But Jesus sits down at the right hand of majesty, suggesting that he himself also is God. And so when this term is used, the Son of Man, Jesus himself uses the same term. He says, and you will see, there in Matthew 26, 64, the Son of Man sitting, seated, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. One day, you're going to get to see that picture. I can't wait. So get ready for this journey. It's going to be a blast. I think you're going to actually enjoy it. Um, We're finishing up Amos on Thursday nights. We're going to be starting a study through the book of James. Uh, So we've got some exciting things. We'll be announcing all kinds of new stuff uh, here in the next month or so as we get back to full swing here in the church. Get ready for a journey through the book of Hebrews.
Father, we thank you that Jesus is simply greater. Lord Jesus, thank you that you didn't count it robbery to come to this wretched earth and take upon you the form of a man and to give your life in our place. We can never say thank you enough. We could certainly never repay you. But we do offer up the one thing we have in our control, and that's us. That's our lives, our bodies, our minds, all that we are as living sacrifices. Help us to proclaim you to the world around us. Live for you in every moment of every day. We thank you for your word and the power to change us and transform us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.